Take your Bibles, if you would, and again, turn back to that Genesis 18 passage that we read just a few moments ago. In 1996, Robert Bork, who was at one point, about nine or ten years earlier, uh, was a nominee to be on the U.S., on the United States Supreme Court. Um, years after, in fact, in this year, 1996, he wrote a book which critiqued American culture. And the title of the book was called Slouching Toward Gomorrah. Uh, minimally, the uh, title is a uh, attention grabber. And in the book, he explained his opinion of why America, in his estimation, was becoming or degenerating into a second-rate nation. And years later, after the book was published, it was actually discovered that he wanted to call it Slouching Toward Sodom, but he could not because the word Sodom was not politically correct. Um, when you asked Robert Bork why he called the book or entitled it as such, um, it was taken from a poem by William Yeats entitled The Second Coming. It was a poem about what he was actually writing about, about society that was completely unraveling from the inside out. And the last line of the poem goes like this, And what rough beast, his hour come, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? In other words, it doesn't. And Robert Bork, in reading that line, said that I think American rough be- our American rough beast is our decadence. And we are not slouching toward Bethlehem, he said. We are slouching toward Gomorrah. Today I put as part of my title, Fathers in the Shadow of Sodom. And I put that word in there not because it has now become politically correct to use it, but because it hasn't been. And actually, it is biblically correct, though, because I believe almost 25 years later, uh, we as a culture have moved closer than ever before to become more like a Sodom-like society than ever. Um, And it's not just sexual deviance that I'm referring to when I make that remark. In Ezekiel chapter 16, in verses 49 through 50, the prophet Ezekiel tells us a little bit more information about Sodom and Gomorrah than the sexual deviance that was taking place. And it reads, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. I've read those verses before, and every time I do read them, I think it's an uncanny resemblance to the American culture which you and I live today. I noticed in that text in Ezekiel that it bookends with two very similar words. It starts out, Sodom's main problem was they were proud and they were haughty. Um, Sodom was arrogant. Sodom thought that they didn't need the revelation of God. They didn't need God to tell them how to live their lives. In fact, they ignored him. In fact, deleted him from almost every facet of their culture and even from their family lives. That is obviously true in this text. And Sodom, in doing so, became what I term to be a Romans 1 society, which became futile in their thoughts, as Romans says, and Foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And when they did that, they exchanged the glory of God and the truth of God for a lie. And I guess my proposition this morning is if that was true then and it's also true now, the question for Father's Day for all of us and even as Christians in general is this. How can I be a godly father 
or a godly Christian and properly raise my children when I live in the shadow of Sodom? What would it look like if I did that? What would I have to do? And what would it look like if I did not? That's why Genesis 18 and 19 are crucial because they give us a little insight into what the answer to that question might actually be. I call them side-by-side chapters. um, And side-by-side chapters are both uh, all throughout the Old and New Testament, actually. They are two chapters side-by-side that always compare one Bible character with another. One's always a positive one and one's always a negative one, i.e. Judah and Joseph in this very book in Genesis 38 and 39. Judah is immoral. He he thinks Tamar is a prostitute on the side of the road and he goes into her and he is anything but morally pure. The very next chapter um, compares Judah with Joseph who as a slave in Egypt in Potiphar's house is Uh, enticed by and propositioned by Potiphar's wife, but he doesn't give into it. In fact, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You have Saul, King Saul, who's after to kill David. David has the opportunity in 1 Samuel 15 and 16 to kill kill Saul or to get back at him, but he doesn't. Achan and Rahab. Achan, who was one of God's children, was told not to take anything out of Jericho, and he does, and he and his whole family are stoned to death. And then you have Rahab, who was the enemy of God, a Canaanite, who actually is not stoned because of Jericho, but actually delivered from it. Complete opposites. Even in the New Testament, when you look at side by side, John 3 and 4, you have Nicodemus, who is a religious man, a Pharisee. He's upright and righteous in all the ways expected by people. And he doesn't know God, but yet the woman at the well, in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, is the complete opposite of who Nicodemus is all about. But she's the one who finds eternal life. It's interesting, isn't it? Throughout Scripture, how these side-by-side chapters teach us things. And that's what I would hope to take place this morning in our text in Genesis 18 and 19. This is really a self-evaluation for fathers and in one sense for all of us. And the question that I would love all of you to ask as we make the comparison between Abraham and Lot, and that is this, which one are you really like? An honest evaluation of where you stand as a dad or even as a Christian. See, both Abraham and Lot lived in the shadow of Sodom, but their responses to that context and that culture were extremely opposite of one another. But you and I know both of these stories. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you're familiar with Abraham. And in chapter 18, the context of uh, verses 16 through 21, I read, God is showing Abraham that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities of the plain. And Abraham stands before God and he begins to argue with God in a righteous way about how God is a just God and he wouldn't punish the righteous with the wicked. And so you know the numbers game that Abraham, so to speak, plays with God. 50 people righteous, you wouldn't destroy them, would you, Lord? 45, 40, and then he goes 30 and 20. He even has to go down to 10 because thinking that Lot and his family and perhaps a few others would be enough. And so you know that story about how Abraham was arguing with God about Sodom, praying for it, that God wouldn't destroy it, have mercy on it. And then on the flip side of that, you have Lot and his family who find themselves not outside of Sodom, but inside of Sodom. In fact, fact, perhaps even as Abraham is prayed or prayed just previously, they have to actually be yanked out of Sodom, including Lot, by the hand by two angels sent from God. I mean, I look at those two stories 
of two men who were related to one another. Abraham was Lot's uncle because his brother, that was his brother's son. And they were together so long, they they left together. They they followed God together for a while. They lived together. But yet in this passage, they are so different from one another. How did it happen? How did it come to this? Specifically for Lot, how did he and Abraham, when they separated geographically, how did they separate in almost every other way also? And I came to the conclusion in reading the text is that slouching or living in the shadow of Sodom, slouching towards Sodom and Gomorrah is a slippery slope. It never, dads, listen to me, it never takes place overnight. It's gradual process. It's, it's a little bit of erosion here and a little erosion here. And some of the foundation and the footing slips away a little bit at a time. In fact, once Lot actually got into Sodom in 2 Peter 2.8 is a commentary on his life and text that says he was tormenting on a regular basis, the word says, his righteous soul day after day by listening and hearing and watching them do all the unrighteous things they were doing in Sodom. See, it was little by little. It was gradual. It was process. He got there and then it started working on him and working on his family. And the, and the life he once shared with Abraham, by the time we get to chapter 19, is completely gone. So I see and I want to share with you all this morning, especially our dads, the three differences I see in the text topically between Abraham and Lot and what happened to them, especially as dads or would-be dad in Abraham's place. The first difference is, if you turn back, I want to show you how it all got started, how we get to chapters 18 and 19. And I want to compare Abraham and Lot in this way. I want to compare what they saw because it's the starting point. And I want to impress on you, if I could, this principle. The power and impact of one single choice that you make on your and your family's future. Okay? And and I want to illustrate it by the Bible using in Genesis 13 the comparison of one phrase used both of Lot and Abraham. And I would tell you, this is the backstory about how we got to chapters 18 and 19. And it was one choice that both Lot and Abraham made, the same topic of decision, but made completely and radically different. And for Lot especially, it was the beginning of a downhill slide to destruction for his family. You can see it with me in Genesis 13, if you'll turn back there. And the same little phrase is repeated in both verses 10 and 14. Let me show it to you. In verse 10 it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes. That's the phrase. Underline it. Lot lifted up his eyes, and here's what he saw. He saw the Jordan Valley. And at that time, the Jordan Valley, here's what the description is. It was well watered everywhere. In other words, it was luscious. This is something advantageous because the reason Lot and Abraham separated to begin with and why this choice was being made because they both had so many animals and flocks that the land couldn't hold them all. And their herdsmen were having fights and disputes about who would get the best land and who would get this land and who had the most rights. And so it became a struggle. And so Abraham, who really was the right one who should have had the first choice, he gives that up. And he says, Lot, you choose what you want, you want and then I'll go the other way. And Lot lifts up his eyes, it says, and he looks at the Jordan Valley. See, and it's well watered everywhere. This is what he needed. He's rich, but this will make him richer. He sees dollar signs in his eyes. He lifts up his eyes, the Bible says. And he sees that it's well watered like the Garden of Eden, like Egypt. 
And that's how it was before the Bible commentates on it and says, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here's a key phrase. Look at verse 11. So Lot chose for himself. He chose what was best for him. Seemingly, it wasn't something where he asked God's counsel or advice. He chose what was best for his flocks. See, that's what he saw when he saw the river valley, when he saw all the beautiful grass and all the things. That's what he saw. See, he saw dollar signs. He saw what was best for his flock, how he could get ahead, how he could become rich, more rich than he ever had been before. But you contrast that with verse 14, where it uses the same phrase, but just a little bit differently. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, see, now God tells Abraham, lift up your eyes. See, Lot had lifted up his eyes. He looked at it purely from his own vantage point, pretty much disregarding God and what God wanted, what was best. And he saw what was best for his flocks. Abraham God tells him to look up. And he doesn't say, hey, you're not only going to have this valley that's so, you're going to have, and he uses all four directions, north, south, east. See, God says, and, and then he repeats over three times, I will give it to you. I will give it to you. I will give it to you. Because Abraham's choice was given to him by God. It was vindicated by God. It was God who was the center of it. And God was telling Abraham, follow my plan. Follow my purposes. Put me at the center of your life. And that little phrase, lift up your eyes, It's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe Jacob and his relationship with God, Moses, the prophets. It's even used a few times in the New Testament. And throughout the rest of Genesis, it's used of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, all of them. But every time it's used of the patriarchs, including the other three references to Abraham, it's used about God. God is telling Abraham, hey, lift up your eyes. And he sees the two angels in chapter 18. Lift up your eyes in chapter 22 and verse 4 when he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. He lifts up his eyes and God says, that's the place. That's where I want you to sacrifice him. And then when he doesn't know what to do, he's about to kill his son with a knife. God stops him and it says he lifts up his eyes and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. Because you know what? When you lift up your eyes the way God wants you to, here's what God says. I'll provide your needs. I will direct your life. I will use you. Because when you lift up your eyes, it's a demonstration of where your perspective is coming from. Whether you're getting it from the world or from God. Whether you're looking for God to give you direction. Whether you're looking for God to meet your needs. Or you're getting it from the world around you or from yourself. You see, they both lifted up their eyes. But one was directed by self and one was directed by God. I have found in my experience in counseling dads and otherwise that the move towards Sodom always starts on the inside. And that's what the eyes represent. They both saw the same thing with their physical eyes. But Lot only had physical eyes. Abraham had spiritual eyes. He could see what the land was really all about underneath. See, he had a spiritual set of eyes. He looked through the Lord lens as he looked at life and everything about it. See, Lot saw flocks. That's what he saw. But he did not see what that choice would mean for his family. He never saw, Lot never saw the day coming when he looked over the crest and saw how advantageous it was to have all of this stuff and how, how it helped his flocks and how it helped his family. He'd have all these things and his needs met, he thought. He never saw for a second what moving in that direction would ever do to his family. 
See, dads, it starts with what you see, how you look at life, the vantage point. Is it through the God lens that you have or through your self lens? See, that's what happened to Eve. It says, you know what? She wanted the Satan's perspective, not God's. And so it says she saw the tree in Genesis 3, 6. She saw it. And it was pleasurable to the eyes. Achan, when he was forbidden to take in Jericho the, anything from that town, the Bible says he saw the Babylonian garment, he saw the gold, he saw the silver. See, and he forgot who he was. He forgot what God had said, and he took it and he hid it under the tent. It was the beginning of the destruction of his entire family. He never saw the day coming. He thought he was just taking something and hiding it and that he could get away with it. He didn't realize that one day it would cost him everything. David looked out at a wartime and he saw Bathsheba bathing. He never thought as king that seeing her and then acting on it would end up in him being a murderer and having his baby die. He never saw how that would affect him being king. He did not have eyes. He could only see this right in front of him. But he didn't have the ability without spiritual eyes to look down the road and see what that one single choice would mean to him and what the direction it would take his life. See, it's possible that you're a dad or you're a father or you're working and, and you have an opportunity to take a job and you're looking at the job and you only see what that job can do for you. It'll build your portfolio. It'll build your resume. It'll offer you more money a year. You'll get greater perks from it. But you don't see the possibility that it could be harmful to your family. Moving to a different place, not having a church to go to that's going to build and edify up your, your children as they grow up. And, and, and you see the perks and you see the benefits, but you don't see the temptations that go with it and how you're your boss is going to expect you to be one of the guys more than ever before. And see, sometimes, sometimes like Lot, we get these eyes. We see this and what it advantageous. And we think it's so great up front, but we don't consider the possibilities of what might lie down the road. We just don't see that. Perhaps a wife who is struggling in her marriage with her husband, not as close as they once were. She's upset because they really don't spend the time together that they should. And he's kind of busy with his job and doesn't really take the time. And sometimes she even thinks, doesn't even want to understand how she feels and what's going on in her life. And so she begins going to a gym, working out to use the time a different way. Meets someone at the gym. And this guy, he's different. I mean, he laughs with her and listens to her and... You know, strangely enough, unlike her husband, he, he understands what she's going through. In fact, he even thinks she looks good. And she sees it only as a friend that I talk to at the gym. But what she doesn't see is what it could be and perhaps where it's even heading. It's heading toward disaster in her life. Because why? Because there is no Lord lens that she's looking through that situation at. You see, perhaps as a teenager or a young adult, see, everyone we say... Everyone you say goes to parties. Everyone does that on the weekends. I mean, hey, almost all my friends I know, they date lost people. They get involved. I even have some of my friends who marry lost people. And, they, you know, every teenager I know keeps stuff from their parents. I mean, I'm, not gonna t- I'm not, certainly not a saint, Pastor Walker. And you see the things that you're involved in, the language you use, the friends that you keep, the people you date. You see that as making you popular, You see that as making you acceptable in the groups that you want to hang in with. 
But what you don't see, because you're not looking through the right lens, you don't see where it's taking you. You don't see that that one choice or those choices that you're making, how radically it's altering and revolutionizing your life and not for the good. You don't see those things. See, see that's the problem. That's where it all started with Lot. And that was the difference between him and Abraham. Is, see, they lifted up their eyes, but they looked at the same set of circumstances and situations completely different. One with God at the center and one with self at the center. So it all started way before chapter 18 and 19, back in chapter 13, with a choice. And that choice was based on what they saw. But the second difference between the two of them, not only what they saw, but where they sat. Can you read verses chapter 18, verse 1, and chapter 19 in verse 1 with me? It seems to be insignificant, but let me tell you how truly important this is. And the Lord appeared to him, meaning Abraham, 18.1, by the oaks of Mamre, and notice, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. See, God sends angels to talk to and give revelation to Abraham. And where do they find him? He is sitting at the door of his tent. Now, God also sends angels to give warning to, and a revelation to Lot. But they don't find him sitting in a tent. In chapter 19, it says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening And where was Lot sitting? And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Well, Abraham was still living in a tent. But by this time, Lot was now had moved into a city. And if you read the text further, you'll find out that he had put a tent away a long time ago. Now he was living in a house. And you say, well, okay, so what, Pastor Walker? You think, am I more godly if I got rid of the house? It was all moved into a tent. No, that's not the idea. Not for us. But let me tell you what tents... In the ancient Near East at this time in the Bible, uh, represent and symbolize. Because they communicate a message. Let me tell you what the New Testament talks about and means when it looks back on what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did when they lived in tents. Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 9 and 10 says this. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, listen, as in a foreign land... Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. You know why they lived in tents? They were communicating a message. And that message is clearly delineated just a few verses later in Hebrews 11 when it says this, that God had made them promises, but they did not receive the promises. In fact, they died never having received the promises. But here's what the Bible says of why they lived in tents. You know why they lived in tents? Because they saw the promises afar off. They knew that Canaan really wasn't it for them. That there was something, in fact, they desired a better country, it says. They desired a city, not like Sodom and Gomorrah and the system that went with it. No, this city was different. It's not the city of man, as Augustine said. It was the city of God. That's what they desired. And so instead of living in that city and living like that city and living in a house in that city, they lived in tents outside those places. Why? Because they were looking forward and communicating a message that they were, the text says, sojourners and exiles. They really didn't belong there. That wasn't their home. Not at all. And what you find in Lot's decisions, as he made the wrong decisions to move towards Sodom, look what the Bible says. Abraham 13, 12 stayed in tents, but here's what Lot did. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now listen, he wasn't there yet. 
He was still living outside and he still had a tent and he was still living in it. But that was about to change because the one decision he made to move into the river valley to have all the grass that was better for his flock so he could get ahead in life and he could be successful because that was the Sodom and Gomorrah dream, right? To be successful, to have it all, to have everybody what everybody else had. He said he just pitched his tent toward that way. Now, in chapter 19, I'm sorry, chapter 14 and verse 12, one chapter later, he has to be rescued because other armies come in and take Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham has to come to his rescue. But here's what it says of him, 14, 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. See it? He used to be outside of it in a tent, and now he's inside of it in a house. He's dwelling there. And by the time we reach him, When the angels come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 and verse 1, he has not only ditched his tent and moved into Sodom, but now the Bible says he's sitting in the gate. He has taken up a place of authority. He is now a ruler. In some capacity, he is governing and ruling over it. He has made it his permanent home. He has lost, do you hear me? He has lost his identity. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He's lost his perspective. And all he can see is what he sees with his physical eyes. See, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Hear me. But eventually he ditched his tent for Sodom. You see. He no longer sided with Abraham. He no longer had the strong faith that he once had. He no longer saw himself as a sojourner in exile, someone who didn't belong here. Now he wanted to be accepted. Now he wants to belong. Now he wants Sodom to be a permanent residence. He he let his tent life go. He traded stories, see. He got out of the Abraham God story and got into the Sodom and Gomorrah story. So dads, let me ask you, where is your tent Do you have it anymore? Again, not a real one, but a spiritual one. Strangers, exiles, have you? And do you teach your kids that this isn't our final place, that there's a new heavens and a new earth, there's a new place that we're headed toward, a place of permanency, and this isn't it? So we're not building our foundations here. We're not looking forward. This is not our hope. The American dream and everything about it is not our hope. See, Abraham, and keeping his life in a tent and living outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what he did? He was living by faith. He was believing the promises of God, even though with his physical eyes, he never saw them come to reality. But Lot, on the other hand, no longer lived by faith. He lived by sight. He wanted what he could get, and he wanted it now. And see, those ways of how they live communicate So, Dad, let me tell you this, the way that you live like, the things that you make the priorities to your children, the things that you push, the things that you really put out there, and you give this to be the measuring stick of their life. See, if you get this, and you have this, and you accomplish this, and you get this job, and you have this, not because any of those things are wrong, not having an education or a good job or making a lot, they're not wrong inherently. But listen, when that is our life, when we have bought into the system of Sodom, and by the way, When you buy into Sodom, it doesn't mean just sexual deviancy. Remember? Remember what the verses in Ezekiel said? Excess of food. See, abundance. We don't really need God because we have everything. We go to our refrigerators and they're full of stuff. We go to the grocery stores and it's full of stuff. Prosperous ease. See that? Prosperous ease. 
We've got money in the bank. We're working toward retirement. We've got a number that we're shooting for. And then it says, no aid to the poor and needy. See, it becomes a self-centered life. Pushing God and others out to the margins and peripheries of our lives. Not God-centered and others-centered. There's really no time for that because I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to work overtime because I have to pay to maintenance all the things I have. And I have to do this because I need another degree and I have to have this. And see, we get into that race and we become, and there's no time. There's no time. Not for ministry. There's no time for service. There's no time for any level really of commitment other than perhaps making the services if it's convenient. And we have time for the stuff. We have time for the vacations, dad. And we, but, but we don't have time for what matters most. Why? Because we bought into the system. We've been, is it, we're warped by the world. You don't think that's true? Let me give you another New Testament commentary on Lot and the days he lived in. Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 28, likewise in the days of Lot, Here's what they were doing. Ready? Eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. See, there was a system. There was priorities and values. Yeah, was there sexual deep? Yes, it's an abomination. It says it in the text. But you know what it says? They were eating. They had an agenda. They were being successful. They wanted to make their life really good. And that's what they were. And they didn't even know. Listen to this. They didn't know the day that Lot went out of the city God rained down from heaven, fire and brimstone. They never even saw it coming. Lot didn't even know it was coming until he had to be told by angels. You know why? They couldn't see it. They'd been in it so long, they were blinded by it, he says. And the tragic story ends with this. In the end, Lot got his family out of Sodom, or some of them, but he could never get Sodom out of his family. He couldn't. When he told his sons-in-law that they needed to get out because God was destroying it, they said it seemed as if he was a joke. That's the Hebrew. It's a joke, Lot. You're going to tell me that kind of... You think that I believe that now? They thought he was a joke. He lost his platform as a dad to even talk to his own son-in-laws. His wife, he got her out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out because she's not even out all the way, she's walking up the hill, and the Bible says she looked back. That's why Jesus says in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. See, he he says, don't look back because this place is going to be destroyed. And you know what? She looked back and she's turned into the pillar of salt. He lost his son-in-laws. He lost his wife permanently. And his own two daughters, they finally get out. They live in a cave in some place and they commit incest with their own father when they get him drunk. He lost it all. All of it. But he never saw it coming. He never saw it coming. And perhaps the most difficult passage in the text for me is 1916 when it says the angels are telling him, get up, take your wife, get out of the city lest you be swept away with everybody else. And you know what the Bible says? Now, listen, if angels are seeing you, you're seeing the angels, and they're telling you to get out, would you not say, let's go, and I would be running. Don't, look, don't even take the suitcases, don't pack them. We're out of here. You know what the Bible says? Listen to this phrase. But he lingered. Seriously? He lingered. I mean, what is there to linger over? I mean, he's loitering. It's as if somehow he has to think about whether this is the right decision or not. Are you serious? 
You know why? Because the decision back in chapter 13 about what he and his family would be all about has so devastated his thinking and his heart for God that now he's not even sure whether he should leave Sodom or not. He's lingering. He's hesitating. Maybe he wanted to get some more stuff to bring with him. I don't know what the real reason was. But it cost him everything. Dads, it's time to stop loitering and lingering And you're as a dad, you're listening to say, you're right, Pastor Walker. There's definitely some things that need to be changed in my family and my kids and the values and standards and priorities and our heart for God and for people and how we minister. Yeah, but you're just mauling it over. You're thinking about, "Ah, but you know, I don't know if we could ever do that. How much would that cost us? Can I tell you this? It'll cost you far more if you don't. Don't look back. Make the decision and don't look back. Hebrews eleven fifteen. If they had been thinking of the land which they had gone out of, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But they didn't. You know what Abraham did? He kept his face forward. They didn't look back. It was time to get out and leave and no longer live under the shadow of Sodom. And they didn't linger. So, The difference, dads, between Abraham and Lot, and perhaps you as well, is what they saw, and then secondly, where they sat, but lastly, where they stood. Do you know our text in chapter 18 of Genesis, verses 18.22 and 19.27, the whole Sodom and Gomorrah destruction uh, story is bookended by this little phrase. In 18.22, you'll look at it with me. So the men turned, meaning the angels, from there and went towards Sodom, Notice, but Abraham stood before the Lord. See, Lot stood in Sodom, but Abraham didn't. He stood outside of Sodom because he stood before the Lord. At the end of the story, chapter 19 and verse 27, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place. See, he had a place where he met God. The first time he talked and argued with God about you know, being a just God and saving Sodom and having mercy. See, he went to the place, the Bible says, where he stood before the Lord. See, that was Abraham's pattern. It wasn't Lot's pattern. And I don't have time to show you today, but when Lot gave up his tent, you know what also went with it? He never was around Abraham because Abraham, every part of his life, everywhere he went, he was building altars. He built an altar here and called it this. And he built an altar here. And everywhere he'd go, he would build an altar. But when, Ab- when Lot gave up the tent, he gave up the altar. And we do not find Lot in Hebrews 11. We do not find him praying. He is not praying for Sodom. He is influenced by it. In fact, in the end, he is devastated by it. But Abraham is far different. Because of where he stood. He stood close to the Lord, not close to the world. And the Bible says in verse 19, God's words, by the way, of who Abraham is about, what he's about. For I chosen him. And the word means to know. It's an intimate relational term. Actually, sexuality is involved at times when it's used. And here's why I chose him. You know why I chose him? Here's why. Notice the two purpose clause. That he might command his children and his household after him. You know why God chose him? Because if he's going to make a nation of separate, different kind of people, the Jewish people, Abraham will be the prototype. He will be the pattern to follow. Because God says he will command his children. 
He will tell him, his children and his household after him, so they will pass it on for generations. Here's how we live. We don't live like Sodom. We live out the ways of the Lord, see. And how do you live out the ways of the Lord? Agency term, by doing righteousness and judgment. We do what's right and we warn people that God will avenge things if they don't. And that's why God comes to Abraham Two places, one Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 27, James 2.23, the New Testament. Abraham is called the friend of God. Not because God thought he was his buddy, because friend is a revelatory term. In John 15, verses 15 through 17, Jesus told his own disciples, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. And, and here's why, because I will tell you all the things the Father has revealed to me. You know why Abraham was close to God? Because God revealed to him what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. He told him what was happening. You know why? Because he was building a nation and he wanted him to see. Listen, listen, Abraham, here's what you need to know and what you need to tell your children. You live right before God. You don't do what they're doing. Don't do what Lot is doing. Don't live that way. You and your family, you be different. That's why I give him these promises. And here's what you need to know. You don't do this, but you also need to rewear this. And if you decide to go the other way, he goes, I will judge you. He saw. The Bible says Abraham looked out and saw what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I can tell you this. Eventually, though Isaac and Jacob were not perfect, they knew what it was like when their dad said, you better knock that off. You know why? Because God hates that. God hates that. And he trained his children. See, Abraham didn't get, have to get his children out of Sodom because he kept them from Sodom. Lot warned his family, and they thought it was a joke. But not with Abraham, because he was a man who practiced righteousness and justice. Dads, is that you? Dad? Is that your children? Do they know God like that? Do they see him? Do they see what moves you and the choices you make and what motivates you and what's behind it? Do they see that kind of level of commitment in you? See, today you have a choice. Live in the shadow of Sodom or in the shadow of the cross. William J. Henry, and I close with this poem, he wrote a song in the shadow of the cross. And one verse reads, In the shadow of the cross, blessed place living only for the Lord by his grace. What, this says, what he says I will gladly do, ever standing for firm and true in the shadow of the cross, blessed place. You know what? That's where joy and happiness is, dads. When you and your family live in the shadow of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the dads in our church at Faith Baptist who are committed to being dads like Abraham. Who their relationship with you matters more than anything else and it's obvious to their wives and to their children and anyone who knows them. Father, I pray that you might encourage them and continue to give them strength to live in the shadow of the cross. And for those of our dads who are possibly some of them, I pray very few of them. Instead, have chosen in making choices, even to this hour, to live in the shadow of Sodom. I pray, Father, that you grant them repentance. And that their relationship with you would 
be revolutionized from the inside out today, that they would live and their children would be trained to live in your righteousness and justice. Please, Father, work that grace into the hearts of all of our fathers and all of us who call on the name of our Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.